Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled cargo uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. When they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, the Lord, or sorry, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we uh, pray now, we know that our minds often are wandering distracted. And Lord, even as we see that uh, the issue of idolatry is ever drawing our minds and our hearts away from you to other things. And I just pray that even as we examine this passage this morning, that uh, we, like the sailors, would turn from the gods of this world to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every September, the tech world gets rather loud around this time in September. And the reason is, is because Apple has gone and released their most recent iPhone. So you'll see the ads on the TV or on your social media, they'll come across. And you recognize that the next generation is out. And at the event that uh, comes along with the release of the new iPhone is an issue of Apple letting the world sort of know that not only are we leaders in the tech industry, but we're leaders in the industry of caring for our planet, for, for the world. And so, interestingly, along with the release of the iPhone, they 
produced a, a mini ad. You can go online, you can see this ad, but it is, um, you know, about five minutes or so where they put together a bit of a comedy sketch that they could, um, well, uh, let you know that they're worried about everything from global warming to climate change and to other issues at hand. And as I was watching this ad, I was Taken, taken aback, I was a little bit awestruck in how this all came about. The, the way the sketch is, the leaders of, of Apple are together, including Tim Cook, the CEO, and he is rehearsing and rehearsing over and over. He says, um, welcome to Apple, I'm Tim Cook. Welcome to Apple, I'm Tim Cook, uh, because they were expecting a guest. The guest to come in would be Mother Nature herself. Mother Nature was coming for a status update from the leaders of Apple. And as she walks in, uh, she's Mother Nature personified because lightning and thunder are striking behind her. She comes in and she's sassy and she's stern and she doesn't look happy about anything. And she says, well, give me a status update. And you could see the, the leaders are going back. Well, maybe you should say this. Maybe I should say that. And so they begin to, to give an, an update where they say, well, you, you know, we're, we're actually next year. With our packaging, we won't have any plastics included in the packaging. And she's like, okay, well, and then one of them, another man gets up. He says, well, just so you know, that all of our main products that are coming out now are all with 100% recycled aluminum. Okay, good. And, and by the year 2030, we are intending on being, uh, net carbon neutral, um, so that they can reduce their carbon footprint. And it's very interesting that all the leaders who get up and talk about what Apple is doing, no one wants to get the wrath of Mother Nature. She is angry. She is stern. And, and what's interesting in the ad and really in real life is that the managers and the employees, they're doing something to appease the wrath of Mother Nature. What are they doing? They're sacrificing. They're sacrificing so that in their work, in their efforts, rather than taking the easy shortcut to anything, they're always working hard to try to appease Mother Nature, and they're working long hours. This five-minute goofy ad highlights the work that they're doing, and on one sense, it's funny, but on, on another sense, all the time, it's a little bit too real. Whether it's made clear through the ad, uh, w- one thing that stood out to me is these high-tech leaders, these CEOs, th- who are neither Christian, nor if you were to ask them, I think they would say, I don't consider myself to be religious, but it turns out that they are deeply religious. And it turns out these people who claim not to be religious are the very people who not just only worship Mother Earth, but actually go out of their way to sacrifice keeping Mother Earth happy. So what about you? What about you this morning? Do you worship? Of course you do. We all worship. The question is, who do you worship? What do you worship? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What is it that at the end of the day will grab your attention, grab your time and your sacrifice? The book of Jonah this morning, we we examine this and we see this very issue at play. What is it you're really worshiping and sacrificing for? And to help us get on track here to look at this morning, we're going to look at two main teachings. First, what the sailors teach Jonah in verses four through six, and then we'll look at what the sailors, sorry, what Jonah teaches the sailors in verses seven through 16. So what the sailors teach Jonah four through six, 
and what Jonah teaches the sailors, verses 7 through 16. So first, trying to get this straight because it's easy to get this backwards. What the sailors teach Jonah, verses 4 through 6. Let me read this again here where the text reads, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So first, notice that God is the one who sends the storm. Uh, God is the one who sends the storm, uh, not just upon the ship and the sea, but upon all that are on the ship, all these sailors, but ultimately upon Jonah. Uh, Jonah wants to escape from his call and from God so much that he goes down to sleep. He's not only running from Tarshish, he's running from his homeland, or not only running from Nineveh, but he's running from his homeland, and he's trying to get to Tarshish. He's running as far away as he can, and ultimately into the bottom of the ship. And when these sailors, they notice that the storm has hit them, and that the boat seems to be hitting uh, these waves so bad that it is threatening to, to break up and fall apart, they're seized with something. They're seized with fear. I mean... These sailors, they're, they're used to storms. Why are they so afraid? I mean, this isn't their first rodeo. They're used to intense weather. But something about this storm, it was bad enough that they re- recognized this was exceedingly a great storm. The boat is ready to break in half. And so just asking yourself briefly, who was it that Jonah was running from? Well, he, he didn't have to, uh, you know run far, to run right into the very thing that he was running from. He's getting away, not just from the Lord, he's running away from the Ninevites. He's running away from the Ninevites. Who are they? Well, they were Gentile pagans. And I don't mean to use that phrase in some sort of pejorative way. Uh, They were truly pagans. In, In other words, those who had this rough, crude form of worship, they were polytheists, meaning that they had many gods. And the way things function for them, they they would oftentimes be uh, trying to appease and scratch the backs of the gods so that they were happy. And so you you don't know, is it the sun god you got to appease or the rain god or the wind god or the god of the ships? You you, got to appease them all because you got to keep them happy. And this is how it worked. And therefore, back to my question, who is it that Jonah's running from? Pagan Gentiles. And who is it that he ends up stuck with on a boat? Pagan Gentiles. And we should be amazed here that our supposed hero is the coward who disobeys the Lord. Rather than Jonah teaching about the mercy and grace and obedience of the Lord, these sailors will teach Jonah something. Could you imagine? What if we, in the next year or something, we want to send off a missionary from our church? And we say, well, we're going to pray over him, we're going to commission him, we're going to want to know what they're going to be up to, and we're going to send them maybe down to somewhere in... South America, maybe like Argentina. So we, we send them off. But then we find out that our missionary is supposed to be coming out of his hut and engaging with people in the culture there and talking about Jesus and getting to know the language and getting to know the people. But we find out that all he does all day long is sleep in the hut. And meanwhile, the Argentinians are coming around his hut and begin to pray to our God. You know what you would say 
This is backwards, completely backwards. That's what's going on here in Jonah. It's completely backwards. And we also see that these sailors, they're, they're not Yahweh-worshipping Jews. Uh, remember, they are polytheists. They're worshipping these gods. They're very religious. And that is exactly what verse 5 shows us. Even though they are religious, and even though they continue to pray to these gods, it doesn't seem to give them any peace. Did you see that? They're going to worship. They're going to sacrifice. They're going to call out. But there's no peace for them. What is the issue? They live in fear. They're responding to the fear of the judgment of God. Much like the Apple commercial with Mother Nature. You don't want the wrath of Mother Nature coming down on you. And so they worship, but it's strictly in fear. It is said that when we are at death's door, what we really worship comes to light. What drives us comes to the forefront. And for these sailors, it's ultimately what they're living in is fear, and it's what grips their hearts. It's why even those who claim to believe in nothing cannot help at the end of the day when the storm hits their lives, fear comes out. And when this happens, people cry out to whatever God they possibly can. But unless they're resting with the God who made the storms, then at the end of the day, we are all in various religions which are just driven by fear. How do you know you're like this? You'll know. Because when the storm hits your life, uh, when disaster strikes you, you will become riddled with anxiety. Uh, you will be mulling over and over in your mind, thinking, what does all this mean? Uh, what if I went this way and did it that way? What, what if that happens? Or what if this really happens? And you'll begin to sacrifice to anything or anyone just to bring a calm to the storm in your life. You'll find yourself coming again and again back to the stage of grief. You know, the stage of grief where you end up bargaining, where you're, you're sort of negotiating and you're like, Lord, if, if you would just do this and remove this for me, then I will do that. It's, it's bargaining in fear. And in desperation, the captain comes to Jonah here in six and he's trying to get him to bargain with his God. So the captain came and said, what do you mean? Arise, call out to your God. I think it's interesting to notice that the sailors here want there to be a God. Even if it's not their God, they want there to be a God. Perhaps it's Jonah's God that is the true God. So at least even if they have it wrong, they at least desire there to be a God to cry out to. And so I ask you this morning, do you, do you at least desire there to be a God? Even those of you who say, I don't believe in this Jesus that you're talking about. Do you at least want what I'm talking about this morning to be true? Don't you at least want this to be real? And if not, why not? Well, if the God of Jonah is true, then I won't be able to just live any way I want. I'm going to have to somehow at the very end of the day end up living for him. Bingo. But also, if the God of Jonah is true and real, it's so much more than that because suddenly life has true meaning. Suddenly, there is a reason for mission. There is a reason to get off the boat and go to the people in Nineveh. There is a message to proclaim. There is a hope beyond the watery grave. So, do you at least want Jonah's God to be real? You must wrestle with this. You must ponder this. Now, church, I know it's really unlikely that anybody's going to just show up on your door tomorrow and just, Hey, um, tell me 
which God's the true God and which God do you worship and who should I turn and worship? That's probably not going to happen. But when disaster strikes, I think a lot of our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, they know that we have an inner peace that comes from above and that we can be the ones who are right there. So when the captain knocks on your door or is in your vicinity, you can come out and say to your surrounding shipmates, here's the true God. Here's the hope that will overcome the fear that you have. You know it's bad when pagan sailors are the ones who are asking the followers of Yahweh, an Israelite, to pray. This is all backwards. Part of what we are seeing the sailors teach Jonah first is a reminder that Jonah isn't the only one on the boat. He may not care what happens to his life, but his life does impact the lives of the other men with him on the boat. He's the reason for the storm. And so the sailors teach Jonah that those who seem to be the furthest away from God actually are those who, when the storm comes, and it will, become those who cry out to God desperately. And we see that they're not beyond the work of salvation. They're not beyond the very people that we say, there's no way might be the people that God says, yes, they're coming in. They're going to believe. And so church on the mountain, will we be there? Will we be there when our neighbor loses their spouse? When a friend is depressed and hopeless, when a coworker is going through a divorce, when an unbelieving family member has a crisis that they are facing, will we be there to point them to a hope beyond the storm? Why do we find ourselves sleeping in the boat? Why, why is it that you and I, oftentimes, we are so much more like Jonah than you ever realize? You, you sit there and some of us are in the boat sleeping, just kind of doing this, going, you know, I'm not going to be part of this mission. I'm just waiting for Jesus to take me out of here. No, we must see that you and I, we share in common, uh, a common root with Jonah. And, and, and I know many of you are thinking, well, what, what is that common root? Because wasn't he running away from his task? Well, yes, he was. Why was he running from his task of, of witnessing to the Ninevites? He was afraid of something. He had fear. And the fear was, if he goes and tells them the truth, there's a worry that his enemies might actually believe it, repent, have grace poured out on them, and his enemies at the end of the day may become his friends. I think we have the exact opposite issue, which is I think many of us are afraid that our family or our friends or neighbors, we're afraid that in as much as we're friends with them, that if we actually go and tell them the truth about these things, that they may become enemies. And we don't want the scorn of the people that we like to be around But at the root of each of these, for you and for Jonah and for I, at the very root of it, no matter which way you go, it's fear, isn't it? We are afraid of what will happen if we speak up, the results of it. And yet what we see here is we're not the only ones on the boat. Our actions, our speaking matters. This is what the sailors teach Jonah. And yet, if this is what the sailors teach Jonah, what is it that Jonah teaches the sailors? This is great. What Jonah teaches the sailors, verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, 
drawing lots, it was an interesting way of trying to determine something or make a decision. And it was, you, you know, where it, we might like roll the dice, for example, in our day and age where you roll the dice and if it's evens, we'll go that way. And if it's odds, we'll go that way. And, and oftentimes drawing lots in their day meant you might put stones or sticks in a bag and each one represented someone. So this, you know, stone represents Johnny and this um, stone represents Joey and this one represents Jonah. And they pull the stone out and they go, oh, it's Jonah. And once this happens, the questioning arises. Verse eight, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? Jonah responds, well, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the creator of everything. Now, when he says he fears the Lord, how can that be true if he is running from the Lord? I mean, you need to understand that when he says, I fear the Lord, it was the common vernacular way of just saying that he belonged to the people of Israel. He belonged to Yahweh. So that fearing the Lord, you know, it it wasn't, it, 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 it basically ends up becoming irony. It would be like a Christian today, a Christ follower who says, I'm running from Christ. You'd say, no, wait a sec here. But in essence, if you're going to check the box and say, who did I identify with? He identifies with the people who feared the Lord, the Israelites, the Hebrews. Now, to truly fear the Lord is all-encompassing. Fear here is not just fear of God's power, although it definitely includes that. But fearing must also include having a sense of awe about the Lord. To view God in terms of the pagan gods leaves them with a shallow kind of one-dimensional view of God. But when we come to Yahweh, this fear that we have of the Lord is is more properly understood to be a reverent fear because, yes, God can strike us down if he wants to right now. But But it's more than that because it includes this awe factor of God. To have an awe of him because he is glorious. He's majestic. He is powerful. But he's also, we're in awe of his justice and his mercy and his grace. It is a full picture of God that leaves us in this reverent fear of him. Um, Just like you and I, we might go to a king today. Let's pretend we we knew that this king was a good king and we go to visit him. You and I would have a sense. We go, we understand we should be in awe of him. We should have this respect and honor and fear all encompassed together. And the sailors They're understanding what Jonah has said about his identity. They take this all very seriously. And essentially they say, what on earth are you doing? Running from the creator of heaven and earth. You have brought the storm on all of us. Well, then they said to him, what should we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, it's interesting, interesting here that the sinful prophet knows that the way to appease the wrath of a holy God is a righteous, uh, sorry, the way to appease the wrath of a holy and righteous God is sacrifice. If you want to appease God's wrath and get the storm to cease, you must bring about a sacrifice. And so he tells the sailors, here's the way out. 
The response of the sailors was not uncommon or strange. It makes sense. Uh, Rather than believe Jonah about the sacrifice of throwing him overboard, uh, no, what they say is, we're going to try our own way first. So they they, they resort to man-centered means where they're going to lighten the load of the ship and they're going to row harder. And interestingly, what this story is showing us is that the men negating the real way of salvation, they go towards their own efforts of saving themselves. And what do we see? They cannot save themselves. If there ever was a lesson for us, it's to see this, that man-centered means will never save us. No, this interesting piece of Jonah's history shows us that there's something else that must save the people. There must be a sacrifice. No matter how hard they row, they come up short. Do you see the flow of events in this section? Why the storm? The sin of Jonah. What would it take to calm the storm? Safety would come with the sacrifice of the one man willing to lay down his life. See this here in verses 14 through 16, then, where therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now I think right here, the sailors were getting to the point, they realized we only have one hope left. We only have one thing. And so they go, I, I, I think the lots were right. I think Jonah is right. And by chucking him overboard, that might be the only way that they're spared. Now, I'm betting as they picked up Jonah, probably took two people maybe to pick him up and throw him in. They probably saw him going down off the ship. And they probably thought, oh my, what have we done? This is insanity. We're killing him. And then the moment he hit the water and the storm ceased and everything became blissful, they probably thought, oh, that is so good. I'm so glad we did that. (laughs) It completely changed their tone. Noteworthy, before they do, they're praying, though. Before they throw him overboard, they pray. And who are they praying to? The pagan god of the sun and the, the pagan god of the clouds and the rain? No. No, they say, oh, Lord. And I was just reminding my daughter yesterday about capital L-O-R-D. Anywhere you see that in the Old Testament, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. When you see the lowercase, lowercase Lord, so or capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that's Adonai. Here, they're calling out not just to a Lord, they're calling out to the Lord. These pagan Gentiles are calling out to Yahweh. And you'll see that. And it's interesting because... It's almost as if these pagan sailors are praying a Jewish prayer of salvation. They're, they're making even sacrifices and they vow. In essence, these pagan sailors, they're becoming Jewish followers of Yahweh. So that in the very first chapter of this interesting book, Jonah, it's definitely a reminder to those of us here who are Christians, who seem to be, you, uh, you know, Even those who might be far away from God at one moment, and very quickly we see that those who are are so far might be the very ones who are crying out to us and along with us, Yahweh, O Lord, let us not perish. And God will answer their prayers. What is the divine verdict for Jonah? Guilty. What is then the penalty? 
a watery grave. These sailors, they're not judge and jury, but they become the executioners here. And the reason they say, uh, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay us not on us the, uh, innocent blood for you, Lord, have done as it pleased for you. The reason they're saying this is because they recognize in this whole act, they're somehow bound up with it. And some of us, we, we think, well, this is just a silly story about a storm and a boat. Um, and it really has nothing to do with us. It's really just a kid's tale about doing right the very first time you're asked. When God tells you to go do it, don't run away from what God's called you to do. Go do the right thing. But friends, this has everything to do with us. This is our story too. Our boat right now is hitting the rocks. And some of us just really know it better than others. Our boat is sinking. And at the end of it, God is going to either crush us or he's going to crush his son for us. You see, what Jonah couldn't do, but his attitude foreshadows is actually done in Jesus Christ. Jonah could give his life for these sailors, but really only in some sort of temporal um, microcosm. Only Jesus Christ could give his life in such a way that it would fulfill a role in an eternal purpose for us. As a quick aside, the storm of God's judgment was too great for them. So that if we back out a bit, a bit, the whole Bible teaches it's not just Jonah who should be thrown overboard of that ship, is it? No, the truth is, Scripture makes it clear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we recognize that the only way out is to appease the wrath of God through a sacrifice. All men have done as these men have done and worshiped their own gods, including non-religious corporate techs who worship Mother Earth. And when she comes around, they're all too ready to make sacrifices to the goddess to appease her wrath. So how do we get out of this mess? How do you get out of this mess today? Well, the gospel, much like this scene in Jonah, teaches us that God's storm of judgment and wrath ends at the cross of Jesus. When Christ was thrown into God's judgment so that through his sacrifice, you and I would be saved and the storm would cease. Let me summarize it like this. Fear-induced judgment can only be appeased with the death of the one for the many. This is what we must believe. This is what will erase the fear of those in the unbelieving world and humble the pride of believers like Jonah who wish to run away. Verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. Christians, you know, you know, Jesus loved to quote from the book of Jonah. Almost more than any other book of the Old Testament, Jesus quoted from Jonah. And when we look at it, it's no surprise why. Embedded in this is a book about a preacher who goes off to declare a message to save a people. And in the midst of it, he becomes the sacrifice to save the pagans who then turn from their idols to worship and sacrifice and make vows to the true God. And if you know the gospel, you know, friends, that this storm here on this boat, it's not the only storm in the Bible. This isn't the only storm in the Bible that has sailors on a boat who are afraid. This isn't the only storm with the boat that is about to break in half where the sailors are afraid and there happens to be a prophet on board, nor the only storm with a boat that's about to break in half with sailors who are afraid with the prophet on board who happens to be down below sleeping. 
You know that. So, let me remind you, from Mark chapter 4, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus. And after leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. The other boats were with him, and there came a great windstorm that arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern, down below, sleeping on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the waves and the sea, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Friends, this isn't Jonah here. This is the one that Jonah failed to be. This is the minister to outsiders who gave his life to save them. This is the God, the creator of the storms. And this is the one with truly innocent blood. This is the sacrifice that saves the pagans who turn to him and fear him and pray to him and worship him. When Jonah was down sleeping in the boat in the storm, it was because he was in sin, running from the mission of God. Friends, when Jesus was down in the boat asleep during the storm, it was because he was fulfilling the very mission of God. And he was, in fact, proving that he was God by coming up and telling the wind, Hey, wind, knock it off. And it ceases. Jesus is the superior Jonah. Jonah then is a pointer forward to the Savior who would die, not just for a few people on a boat, but and not even just for Jews in general, but for all those who repent, turning from sin to trust in Christ. We believe that he created the heavens and the earth. We believe that he created us in his image. We believe that he loves us enough to come and die for us. We believe all of heaven is in our future. And when disaster strikes our lives and things look bleak, he asks you this morning, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Do not fear, only believe. This is the Christ who brings good news to you and I this morning to those whose boats are being tossed by the waves. Jesus says in John 14, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And when you and I, we have the peace of Christ, that's the moment when you and I are actually going to be able to be on mission to those in our vicinity, to our neighbors, to the people we work alongside who need Jesus so much. When we actually have the peace, they're going to look and say, these folks here at Church on the Mountain, they have a peace like none other. They're able to trust, no matter what comes, that God is over them. And they're not going to be ones who quibble in fear. Friends, when I was watching that Apple ad about Mother Nature, you know the last thing that kind of struck my mind was after she left, the CEO and everybody with, with him there, they all kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Our God that we worship, whew, she's finally gone. I thought, this isn't how it is for Christians. For Christians, when our God shows up and is dwelling in our midst, that's when we breathe the sigh of relief. When our God is on our boat and says, peace, be still, stop, knock it off. That's when you and I breathe a sigh of relief. And this is exactly the thing that Paul reminds the Thessalonians. He says, I want you to have this peace 
Uh, the way Paul puts it in First Thess- Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned from, God, from uh, idols to serve the living true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Listen to this. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we desire to to turn from the idols of this world to worship the true and living God. And we too desire to be alleviated and breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that wrath is not for us because your son was cast overboard. We have a hope. We have a peace. We have a reality that is so great. It is too good to keep to ourselves. Help us see that and declare it in Jesus' name. Amen.